0: That was the right one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, we thank you again that you have made yourself known to us, uh, not only in your word, but in the word, your son, Jesus Christ. And um, we thank you that in leaving us, he uh, left us with a promise that he would come again. And we pray as, as he lingers, that you would listen to the calls for justice that rise from our land and from all over the world. Uh, we pray that they would fill your ears and that you moved in your compassion for us in your love for us that you would send your son quickly to us. that We might find relief that there might be reconciliation between broken peoples races that are Opposed to one another. Suspicious of one another. Homes that are fractured. You'd make all things new. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would work in us to make us instruments of your reconciliation. Teach us how to wait. Fill our mouths with prayers for justice, for peace. Hear them, Lord. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we're in the fifth chapter of James. And by now it has become clear, I hope, that James greatly values the presence of faith, of true faith in the life of the believer. All of his advice is aimed at encouraging and strengthening faith, true faith, faith that issues forth in works, just like an apple tree issues forth in apples. It's the most natural thing. And in order to encourage faith, James has to tailor his advice according to the circumstances of his target audience. Different circumstances require different approaches, which is apparent in the transition from last week to this week, right? If last week, James addressed us as oppressors. This week he addresses us as the oppressed. If last week he demanded we weep and wail, this week he calls us to patient endurance. If last week we were called rich, this week James locates us amongst farmers and amongst the prophet Job, who famously suffered the loss of all things. In verses 7 through 12, James is addressing Christians who are suffering and oppressed in these six verses he addresses his audience four times as beloved and the greek behind the nrsv's translation is actually brothers but in order to communicate the the inclusive the representational nature of this the nrsv chose to use the word beloved this includes brothers and sisters in christ in other words james wrote his instruction in verses 7 through 12 for christian brothers and sisters who were most likely enduring the sort of oppression he described in verses 1 through 6. They were being denied their wages. They were being marginalized with the sort of marginalization that comes from being poor. And their oppressors were likely the Greco-Roman landowners, the, the rich of the day who exploited people and property for their own personal gain. Last week, we listened to James address the rich in verses 1 through 6. James felt the rich needed to be reminded of their imminent end and the loss of all things when Jesus comes to judge the world. And the appropriate behavior in light of such an end is to reevaluate your priorities in the present according to the mind and heart of Jesus Christ so that you might experience his pardon and his love in the day of judgment. The oppressed are likewise this week told to look ahead to their imminent end. But rather than being told to mourn, James encourages them to wait patiently in the presence. He's calling for endurance. Six times in this short passage, James calls for either patience or steadfastness. And this is the appropriate response for those Christians who feel this world is stacked against them told to wait a little longer, because Jesus has promised you joy and rest at the end of life. And indeed, this is what God promises to all his humble children who have either voluntarily or involuntarily been emptied of themselves in this world for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. He will make glorious the lowly. He will crown the poor with riches. He will give rest to the weary, satisfaction to those easily tempted, comfort to the grieving, justice to the oppressed. And admittedly, such sweet promises are not yet fully realized in this life. There may be glimpses of their fulfillment, and we are called to to bring the fulfillment into the present, but they're fleeting and incomplete moments. Therefore, the the Christian must hold to the promises of Christ, like one clutches to a a life preserver in choppy ocean waters. The promises of God must be preserved with a fierceness like that which appears in a person guarding the solitary copy of a will, listing them as the sole recipient of a vast inheritance. As a kid growing up in Connecticut, snow days were fairly rare snow was common, but missing school because of them was not. This was before Facebook and the interweb, so each school district would announce their decision in the morning on a, a scrolling banner that would cycle through state school districts in alphabetical order along the bottom of each local news channel. And as a kid, whenever you woke up to discover six or eight inches of fresh snow on the ground, the first thing you did was run to the TV to turn it on to the local news channel. And there you would watch eagerly, nose pressed to the screen for your school district to pop up on the scrolling banner along the bottom of the screen. And the anticipation and the, the eagerness of those moments is, is hard to define. And when Ellington Public Schools would show up as canceled for the day, then there was great rejoicing in that household. Loud praises rose as incense before God from the mouths of young boys and girls all across the district. James is saying here that Christians should daily search the scriptures for the promises of God with that same eagerness and anticipation so that there might be rejoicing amidst pain and patience amidst suffering when they are reminded that God is bringing rest and restoration. The promises of God are to be eagerly sought after and kept alive by the faithful ones who suffer in this life, for that future hope is able to sustain them in the present. Pope Gregory the Great, I've read from it already once today, but uh, in his book, Book of Pastoral Rule, writes, If the happiness that is attained is a happiness that is not transitory, then the toil of the passage becomes light. Indeed, the happiness promised by God to the oppressed in this world is not transitory, but eternal. For that very reason, it is a happiness that lightens the toil of our passage through this world. Now, most of us in this room are not socioeconomically exploited people demanding justice for ourselves we're just not we're actually a a privileged people who are frustrated by substitutions in our grocery pickup orders anxious about it raining during our vacation angry about slow wi-fi connections afraid of being known we have no doubt there will be food on the table we have multiple outfits hanging in our closets stuffed in our drawers we never have to choose between medication and rent, there will always be presents under our trees and chocolate in our baskets, and that way then, are we recipients of James's instruction to oppressed people, in verses 7 through 12, does James, do James's calls for patience apply to us, despite the variance of positions and prescriptions in James's letter, I think it's possible for us to be personally challenged by his instructions to both the oppressed and the oppressors. Last week, I tried to establish that James address, uh, uh, James's address to the rich in verses 1 through 6 is important for us to listen to as Americans. I quoted the statistic that if you make $25,000 or more annually, then you are in the top 10% of the world's wealth. If you make $34,000 or more annually, then you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. That most likely qualifies every single one of us in this room as rich. But how can we identify with the oppressed when we are in fact quite the opposite? Interestingly, in in verses 10 and 11, James brings in the prophets, specifically Job, as examples for us to follow. he writes in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You've heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James points to the prophets who suffered terribly at the hands of people who did not want to hear what they had to say. Jeremiah was famously put in stocks, even thrown into a pit. Daniel spent the night in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace. The prophets were not treated well. But they endured all these things because they believed that God would raise them up. If not in this life, then in the next. But it's interesting to me that James does not mention Jeremiah or Daniel or Elijah. But instead he calls out Job by name. This is interesting to me because... In the choice of Job, we find for ourselves a people who are not oppressed by earthly opponents, a way to understand and receive James's instruction in, in verses 7 through 12. All right, the story of Job provides us with the, the backstory about why Job lost everything that he possessed. Interestingly, for James's purposes, Job was a rich man. He possessed much. He enjoyed great comfort in life. He was also a godly man. And despite what his friends believed, he had committed no sin, which was the occasion for his great fall. He obviously sinned, but Job was also described as a blameless and upright man. The loss Job experienced was not discipline. And we know this because the story tells us that Satan reported to God after roaming about the earth, looking for people to to tempt and distract from serious consideration of God, when out of the blue, God asked Satan whether he had ever considered Job. God offered up Job to be tempted and tried by Satan. But he did this not because he hated Job, but because he trusted him. You see, Satan thinks that Christians love God simply because they receive good things from him things as fundamental as health children homes jobs the list goes on satan does not believe that christians love God for God's sake alone and so it's his mission to prove it he loves nothing more than mocking God and christians are the means for his mocking if he can take away all the good things we enjoy in this world, things as fundamental as our health, and get us to abandon God in our misery, then Satan rubs it in God's face and he says, See, they don't love you. They never did. They love the stuff you gave them. No one really loves you. Right? And this is exactly what he did with Job. God was the first to suggest Job because he trusted Job to remain faithful despite losing everything. At first, he did not let Satan touch Job's flesh, so Satan took everything away from Job, his kids, his house, everything. But he did not take away Job's health because he had been forbidden from doing so. Job was utterly devastated, right? He tore his clothes, he shaved his head, he, he just lay there on the ground. But still he confessed, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Still, he did not deny God. And this, of course, infuriated Satan. And so in the Old Testament passage read for you earlier, we see Satan returning to God and we hear him making the accusation in verses four and five that Job continues to worship God only because he has retained the gift of health. Flesh, skin for skin, he says, right? Touch his bone and flesh, Satan says, and he'll curse you to his face. God gave Satan his permission and off Satan joyfully slithered to inflict Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his crown. Job was beyond miserable all day he would just sit in dust and scrape at his open wounds with a a shrapnel of pottery bleeding weeping all over his body and only making matters worse were his quote-unquote godly friends who lost their patience after seven days of sitting with Job and decided to take a more active approach. They began lobbing accusations at Job, trying to explain why this was happening. They only added insult to injury. And yet, Job did not deny God. His own wife advised him to curse God and die. But Job asked, Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? And the narrator tells us that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, right? He refused to curse God because he knew somewhere deep within himself that this sickness and the loss of all things was an opportunity for him to prove Satan wrong. He didn't know the backstory like we do, but he did know that despite his misery, God was still worth loving somehow. He was right, of course. In his grief, he obtained a greater opportunity to prove his love for God, just for God's sake alone. It's easy to praise God when things are going swimmingly. It's far more significant to do so when you're suffering. God receives even greater glory then, and Satan is silenced. Isn't it interesting then that James should call out Job of all the prophets by name in his advice to the oppressed? Yeah, in verses 7 through 12, James has in mind the victims of Greco-Roman landowners, but he also has in mind every Christian who is spiritually oppressed by an adversary who works tirelessly to prove that you don't really love God. You just love yourselves. You love your health. You love your job. You love the things that God has given you. So James calls for endurance. His calls for endurance are a call to adopt the posture of Job. And no matter what you either gain or lose in this life, you retain a deep faith in the goodness and love of God, even if your circumstances make that look like an irrational and insane thing to believe. If things are going well, If you've earned a lot of money and worked hard to get several promotions, it's an an unusual thing to give God the glory, right? After all, it was you who put sweat and hours in. If you've lost something or someone very dear to you, it's strange to still insist that God is kind. Job's Job's wife certainly felt Job was acting irrationally. But to quote Hebrews 11, faith is the conviction of things things not seen. This is what James is seeking in you, true faith that bears fruit, even when the leaves are bare and the season is winter. James warns you in verse eight that your hearts will feel weak and they'll need to be strengthened. And in verse nine, that you'll be tempted to resort to grumbling and bickering, but wait patiently, endure the early and the late rain like a farmer anxiously waiting for his crop to sprout. And God will fulfill his promises. Looking forward to the promises that await you will help you to endure the spiritual trials that come to you as a Christian without resorting to grumbling or bickering. We have every reason to believe God will fulfill his promises. In fact, we have more reasons to believe this than Job did. Job believed in the love of God despite the loss of all things. But we have seen Jesus God in the flesh, who endured the loss of all things in order to prove and secure God's love for us. Jesus lost his friends and his life. He was even abandoned by God the Father, but he did all this to prove his love for us. He was offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. It was a sacrifice that God gladly accepted. His death satisfied God's demand of justice for our sins, so that through Jesus, the love and pardon of God awaits us. At the end of life, we can expect to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We deserve to be ignored, but through Jesus we will be embraced. We deserve to be condemned, but through Jesus we will be forgiven. We deserve to be rejected, but through Jesus, we will be accepted. That is what awaits us. And if we can live in the hope of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, then we can endure all things in the present. Therefore, be patient, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth. Being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See the judges standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You've heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate compassionate. And merciful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.